Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd be more than happy to hear from you. Um, Coming up on today's show, I'm joined this morning on a bright spring day here in the capital by Anne Beckett Allen, founding director of Rosedale Funeral Home. Rosedale is a funeral directors with seven branches based in Norfolk and Suffolk, employing 60 members of staff. Um, Anne, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for coming on to the programme and joining us today. Certainly it's turning into a nice day for it. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room first, Anne, and that's the fact that although we are starting to move out of social restrictions and we're seeing some real green shoots there for industry, we're still somewhat in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, aren't we? And we have been for the best part of the last 14 months. So over the course of that period of time, how has this pandemic affected you and your business, would you say? Well, it's, I mean, obviously, as funeral directors, we've been working on the front line throughout, but obviously the restrictions have impacted us massively. Um, and in terms of leading the business through this, I had a number of priorities. I had to I had to make sure I kept the staff safe, and that was kind of like always the thing that guided all of our um, decision-making through the pandemic. And then we had to make sure that we kept our standards high. And that, regardless of whether those 200 people attending a funeral or at some point um, during that period, there were only six people allowed to attend. But we needed to make sure that we kept our standards um, to the same high levels throughout. We also had to ensure continuity of care of the deceased. Um, Obviously, in a pandemic, we were dealing with people who died of COVID and people who hadn't died of COVID, but obviously all of those families were impacted by the regulations. And then we had to make sure that we supported the bereaved as well. So, you know, every kind of facet of the, of the business is affected. And our staff, um, <laughs> we, so we've got 60 members of staff um, and, and they're all, they all have their own special sets of circumstances. So about a third of those um, were our part-time team of pool bearers many of those are over 70 so um pretty early on a lot of those were told to stay at home and shield um, in accordance with government guidelines so that kind of reduced the workforce down straight away and then obviously we had to accommodate people and um, that needed to shield family members we had people who um all of a sudden were homeschooling because although the schools did stay open for key workers children um, not everybody in the early days felt comfortable still sending their children in. And, you know, even within my own family, my children were, um, you know, sometimes they were in school and sometimes they were homeschooling. And actually sometimes they were having to cook for me and my husband because we just simply didn't have time to, to feed the family. 
So you've had to be sort of really sensitive to the needs of the workforce there in terms of being able to shield, managing sort of their anxieties as well, I suppose, about the dangers of COVID. And I guess from a well-being point of view, um, that would have brought some challenges for you in terms of how you've had to lead and manage people through this. Yeah, definitely, because, I mean, obviously they're in a kind of um, caring and supportive role in terms of how they are looking after the bereaved. And in the early days, we were having to manage funerals um, where initially when we arranged them, you know, they were very big funerals with 100, 200 mourners expected to attend with a big wake afterwards. And then obviously the news of the the pandemic was developing and um, so we had to then bring the numbers down to 100. So we had to unpick all of those arrangements and then put them in place again. And then a week later, you'd have to unpick them all again and reduce them down again. So in the early days, things were changing daily. And we were having to support the families with those changes. But of course, that then impacted on the staff's well-being as well. And because we were operating um, split team shifts, so that not everybody who would normally be in the office would have been there because we were having to try and separate the team so that, you know, we could ensure business continuity. Um, and it, it was really, really difficult. And we and we had we had sort of a mix of staff who we were trying to support people who were working from home and feeling isolated. And then at the other end of the scale, we had people who were working on the front line and were feeling completely overwhelmed. So we had, you know, the whole spectrum really of staff that we needed to support. Yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from there in terms of keeping everybody well supported and well guided. Mm. Um, And just thinking about sort of the current state of affairs now, um, I have to confess with regards to the current roadmap out of restrictions, I do know the general outline of it, but I don't know the exact permutations for funerals. And we have heard, of course, this week that that is going to be pushed back by four weeks now to July the 19th. That's now Mm -hmm. the Freedom Day when all social restrictions are going to be removed. So what Mm -hmm. is the operating environment like in your industry now in terms of limits? And are you finding that it is more manageable? Um, Yes, in a sense it is. And and once the funeral numbers stabilise at 30, and once everybody kind of, Everybody became familiar with what the arrangements were. Um, and because we then live with those restrictions for a number of months, when death, new deaths were occurring, people were, in a sense, prepared and they knew that, that, that the funeral numbers would be restricted. So for a long time, funerals were capped at 30. That cap has been gone now for a few weeks. And in actual fact, what, what the situation is now is that the number of mourners is limited by the by the capacity of the venue. So in, in actual fact, some crematoria still are keeping that cap at 30 because that's all that they can safely accommodate. So really, with the regulations that have, have now been put back, what we're really waiting to hear on, the thing that's going to affect the funeral profession the most, is what the guidelines is going to be around um, wearing a face mask and social distancing, because obviously if you have to maintain the two metres social distancing, then that impacts hugely on the capacity of the venue. 
And just reflecting on sort of the last 14 months um, at large, um, do you feel that sort of communication and guidance for the sector, especially in terms of timing, has been sort of up to scratch or have you had to sort of fend for yourselves quite a bit and adjust quite quickly? No, I've actually been really, really fortunate in this because I took a lead role on the local resilience forum. So um, we had a a group of people, an incredible group of people, actually, that I've got the hugest respect for. And we had a representative from the registrar, from the coroner. We had Rev Dave, who represented the faith group. I was the funeral director lead. Um, There was the GP. There was um, somebody representing the cemeteries and crematoria and somebody representing the temporary mortuary for the county. Um, And so I was really at the forefront of lots of the um, decision-making that was made in our county. Um, And we also had a a national, um, it was called the, the Death Management Group, which sounds really quite clinical, but in actual fact was incredibly well run. And so I was able to attend um, a national meeting with um, all of the Resilience Forum funeral director leads around the country. And then I was able to feed back that information locally. And we, actually, as a profession, felt incredibly supported. Everything that we asked for, we, we, you know, we got. We were supported with mental health resources. Um, we had great communication. Um, and actually, you know, the Resilience Forum worked really well to ensure that we were supported and that we could continue to support the bereaved. Yes, it's a hugely important, isn't it, that the conditions are there to be able to, of course, help people in the community as much as possible. And uh, I do think that when you're sort of taking such an active role in not just, of course, guiding your own business through, but also on local networking groups like you have there, Anne, um, there's, mm-hmm. you're in a position to learn quite a lot, even through the struggle, aren't you? So when we talk about the lessons that we're going to take away from the pandemic, um, what are some of those for you? Have you? Do you feel like you've learned a lot from this and you're maybe coming out of the other side stronger and more resilient despite the experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were really fortunate at Rosedale because we already had a pandemic plan. We meet together once a year because because our staff are all spread across the seven different funeral homes. They very often don't meet with each other. So once a year, we all come together um, and we do, um, you know, we, we work on projects as a team um, and celebrate some of the successes throughout the year. So as part of that staff away day, we'd already got a pandemic plan. So that was, you know, we were in a really good place to start off with. Um, but we have learned lots of lessons. Obviously, having a plan isn't the same as living it in real life. Um, and we did learn a lot. And I think probably my biggest takeaway was having to delegate because I simply couldn't, do everything myself. You know, I was having to do daily um, staff briefings to see all of the staff. I, I had um, students because I teach the diploma and funeral direction to um, students across the country. So I had those to look after. We had to look after the, the not just the newly bereaved with the immediate need of a funeral, but the aftercare that we offer as well, for, you know, for people in, in the months following the funeral. We had to carefully deceive. We had to make sure the funerals were managed. And I had to look after my family. And I just couldn't do it all. So I think my biggest takeaway 
was actually having to play to people's strengths and having to let go some of the control and actually trust in that the staff had got it. So there were a couple of people who took over the, the bereavement aftercare and they just ran with that, came up with all sorts of innovative ways to um, to still be able to provide that support. And I was just able to, to let that go. When normally I try and be involved in every aspect of the you know side of the business, and, and I just couldn't do that. So we you know we had to play to people's strengths. So where we had um, a team of people um, on standby to bolster the workforce, which is our constant fear throughout, was you know if one funeral director got COVID, then the whole team would have to self isolate. That would wipe out the staff from the funeral home. So we had these people who were on furlough who were offering to help. You know, they wanted to support the community. And so we had bearers who were training bearers. But normally, I would oversee all of the recruitment. I wouldn't ever take anybody on without having interviewed them myself personally first. Um, but I had to just let go and I had to trust. I think that's one of the key takeaways from the pandemic, isn't it? That T word, trust. And I think across so many industries, trust has really been enhanced, hasn't it, between business leaders and their workforces. Even if, say, confidence in other sort of institutions and authorities has been sort of somewhat eroded during this time. When it comes to trust, that is certainly something that's thrived, isn't it? That relationship between a business leader and the people that work for them, because people have really stood up, been counted over this last year and brought out the best in themselves. That is undeniable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was really important that everybody had a voice as well. Every single member of staff had a voice and they were able to express their concerns. You know, we listened to their ideas because they're the people who who do the job day in, day out. And, you know, they're the ones that needed to feel safe and comfortable with the processes. Yes, exactly. And um, just because um, I'm conscious that we are now starting to run short of time on the programme, and I do want to talk about the immediate future just before we do wrap things up. Um, we understand, of course, that hopefully within four or five weeks' time, the remaining social restrictions in the UK will be lifted and life will be able to return somewhat as we knew it before the pandemic. Um, and as we begin to move into that period, hopefully, um, where do you see your business, Rosedale, going and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the course of the next year as we do move out of lockdown? Okay, well, the profession as a whole actually faces some quite major challenges because during the pandemic, we've been, um, we've had the spotlight of the Competition and Markets Authority shining on the female profession and they've literally um, yesterday just published their findings so the funeral profession's got some challenges there that they need to respond to in terms of um, price transparency um, and supporting the the client really in their choice of funeral director at the time of need. So that's something that the profession as a whole needs to look at. We're quite fortunate at Rosedale because we've always tried to lead on price transparency. So our prices have been on the website years and years and years, I can't remember a time when actually we didn't have our prices on the website. That isn't the same for lots of funeral directors and they are going to have to, to put together their pricing in a clear and transparent way online. Also, funeral plans are going to be um, really heavily regulated and we're still waiting to see what that looks like and how we might have to adapt 
um, to make sure that we comply with with that guidance. Um, but I think in the immediate future, as the re- regulations lift, one of our challenges really is, is going back and contacting all the families right back from the start of the pandemic who weren't able to have a funeral, but who expressed an interest in a memorial service at some later date. Um, and, and obviously we need to now touch base with those families to see whether that's something that they still have an appetite for and they want us to support them with or, or actually whether they feel that, you know, it's gone on for so long now that that, that moment has passed and, and they don't now wish to do that. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting time with regards to that and just waiting on what is going to be happening over the course of the next few weeks. But hopefully that picture does become clearer and normal operations can resume over the course of the uh, the weeks to come. And I think as we start to get a better idea as well, Anne, as to what kind of recovery we're getting as well over the uh, the months ahead, I'd quite enjoy welcoming you back onto the programme and just catching up on how the industry is faring in the post-COVID environment, because I have to say it's been a real enlightening experience having you with us today and maybe shone a light on an industry that not a lot of people knew what was going on with over the course of the last 14 months. Thank you. No, that would be really good. Uh, you know, there were times where people during the pandemic were actually quite unkind to um, to me and to some of the staff. And, you know, they would say things like, well, it's all right for, for you field directors. You must be rubbing your hands together. And, you know, that was so unkind because, you know, it couldn't have been further from the truth. We're not particularly motivated by money and profit. You know, what we're motivated by is being able to provide a, a, a good service to the bereaved and, you know, a, a good service to the deceased as well. And, you know, that was our, our challenge was focusing on being able to maintain those things. Yes, exactly. There will be challenges on the horizon. Exactly right. And hopefully um, there'll be a much success as well in dealing with that and maintaining that quality level of service. And for sure, um, I do wish you all the best in the months ahead and look forward to hopefully catching up. And since we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet as well, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well. Uh, thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Anne Beckett-Allen, founding director of Rosedale Funeral Home in Norfolk and Suffolk, onto the programme today. Um, Here at the Leaders' Council, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of different perspectives on leadership, and therefore, next up on the programme, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, during his professional football career, he achieved a great deal to Sir Jeff, but he remains most well-known for that famous hat-trick at Wembley, which saw England lift the Jewel Remade Trophy after beating the West Germans 4-2 after extra time. Now, um, Sir Jeff is going to be talking about some of the leadership highlights of his career, but also looking back on his take on the last 14 months and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS. Um, That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. 
in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage. 
of confidence and yes listen to those who know more about business than I ever will thank you Lord Blunkett thank you this has been the Leaders Council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host Scott Challoner until next time goodbye thank you for listening to our podcast the views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.